Hey, it's Ed. I want to thank three brand new podcast sponsors, Gian Vishano, Aaron Ray, and Hans Allhoff. Thank you guys so much for the support. It means a ton. It's completely unexpected, but I really, really appreciate it. No pressure to anybody else to support the podcast financially. It's free, always will be free. But if you are so inclined, you can go to mountainandpray.com support to check it out. Thank you so much. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Melissa Danino. Melissa is a biologist, artist, and designer who currently lives and works in Montana's legendary Tom Minor Basin. A native Easterner, Melissa moved west soon after college to work as a range rider, a job that involves monitoring livestock on horseback in an effort to encourage the successful coexistence of livestock and apex predators in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. In her role as a range rider, Melissa developed a deep appreciation for Montana's spectacular landscapes, the challenging relationships between people and predators, and the importance of compassionate communication between all stakeholders. Melissa grew up in Connecticut and developed an early love of adventure and the outdoors while spending time at her family's cabin in Maine. She's also a committed athlete and played competitive basketball from age five through college. As you'll hear, Melissa is humble and soft-spoken, but she also has a track record of pushing herself hard, both in academics and athletics, as well as in her present-day professional work and art. Although only in her mid-twenties, Melissa is wise beyond her years and is committed to doing meaningful work in a place that she loves, surrounded by a supportive community, and she's making it happen in an inspiring way. I know regular listeners will really enjoy this conversation, but it'll be especially valuable to anyone who's in the early stages of their career and is looking to do work that is meaningful and fulfilling. Melissa and I discuss her path to Montana, as well as some of the challenges and funny mishaps of adjusting to life in the West. We talk about the realities of piecing together a variety of different jobs and artistic endeavors while remaining focused on the big picture of doing work that matters. We chat about lessons learned from athletics, the value of being competitive with oneself, and the importance of being willing to put yourself out there in creative pursuits. We also dig into some of the details around wolves, grizzlies, and the importance of civil discourse when discussing emotional subjects like this. As usual, we talk about favorite books, films, and places in the West. Links to everything are in the episode notes. Thanks so much for listening. I know you enjoy this episode with Melissa Danino. When you meet somebody for the first time and they ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that question? Well, that's honestly one of my least favorite questions. <laughs> uh, it is me too, which is funny why I start the podcast because it annoys me to death when people ask me that. But all right, go ahead. Uh, yeah, because I mean, I feel like I wear a number of different hats. And so depending on the day or the season or the year, like I'm or who I'm talking to or the context of the situation I'm in, that answer always changes. And so trying to like come up with something that sounds fairly solid <laughs> can kind of be a struggle sometimes. And I definitely will stumble. But like everything from like I've worked as a range rider to artist um, and graphic designer to like a human wildlife kind of conflict consultant in a sense. And yeah, so a number of number of different things. See, I guess I'd be very proud of that if I were you, because that's a lot better than saying I do corporate finance for Frito Lay. You know, what if that was your answer? <laughs> Seventy hours a week, I'm doing spreadsheets about potato chips. I mean, I went to school with people that say that, so <laughs> I'd be very proud of that. And that's exactly why I wanted you to have, have you on the podcast. Um, well, I guess there, there's a ton of different things I want to talk about. Maybe the first thing is, can you talk about? the range rider program. Cause I, we had Daniel Anderson on the podcast a while back and he, he briefly mentioned that and it's come up in conversation over, over time on the podcast. So could you just 
maybe talk a little bit about that program, how you got involved, what you did? Yeah. Um, so I worked as a range rider in Centennial Valley and Tom Minor Basin, where I live now. Um, and kind of in short, the program is to have another set of eyes on the landscape and attempt to help reduce conflicts with predators. Um, and so there's a number of things that uh, a range rider is doing in a given day or over that season when they're out there. Um, everything from monitoring herds for sign of sickness or injury or anything that will make them vulnerable to a predator attack. Um, we're locating and managing carcasses, tracking wildlife behavior and movements. Um, and there's also the potential um, to haze predators if if we saw ones that were trying to cause some trouble. But that's honestly not something that um, happens very often, at least in my experience. So who like who employs you? Like who's paying your your um, salary or your wages in that? Who who are you work like who who runs the the range rider program? So in both cases, they were kind of landowner um, organizations that were started in each in each place. Um, so for Centennial, it was the Centennial Valley Association, and in Tom Minor, uh, the Tom Minor Basin Association, and. Um, both of them get their funding from a number of sources. It's a, very much a collaborative kind of project in both locations. And um, a lot of nonprofits that are interested in the work and trying to help and also some federal and state kind of money that comes to uh, help fund it. And, um, and I know for sure in Centennial Valley also um, folks that were grazing um, there's actually a wildlife refuge in Centennial Valley, and the folks that were grazing had to pay their grazing fees, and all of the fees from that, I believe, went to directly to funding the range riding program. Got it. And how long has that program been around? Wow. Um, let's see. Centennial Valley's was newer. It was around for at least one year before I was there. So that was, it probably started, I think, in 2004. 14. I'm not hundred percent sure on, but they're relatively exactly. new. It's not like, yeah, not like they've been for 30 years or something. No, no. Yeah. The last 10 years for sure. So do you know much about the kind of the history of it? I mean, like, why did they, I guess first question would be, is that a relatively new concept? Um, has that been done anywhere before that you know of? And then the second question is like, why did they think that that would be the answer to, to solving some of these problems, these challenges that that are, that people have in that area? Yeah, well, I mean, range riding is definitely a pretty old concept that goes back way, like very far. Yeah. Um, but it's just kind of a newer, what at least people are doing with range riding today. Um, it's kind of a newer take on this older concept um, with the tracking wildlife and, I don't know, at least the the angle that it's being approached is a little different. I'm focusing on predators a little bit more, at least in some areas. Some people still have range riders and they don't consider it much of a, a predator kind of focused position. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a newer concept. And then in terms of how it's helping or why people thought it might help, um, just having an extra set of eyes to like I said, when you're having somebody else that's out there to like monitor herds and look for signs of sickness or um, anything that might make a cow or any livestock more vulnerable, being able to notify landowners, um, knowing how predators are moving on the landscape um, that will allow us to kind of see patterns and help us to manage livestock kind of more in tune with how the predators are moving and try to avoid some of that conflict. For example, yeah. even if, if there's say like a, a wolf den and you don't know that it's there, but you're grazing right on top of it. If we can figure out where the wolves are basing out of and maybe try to avoid grazing that area while, while it, <laughs> they're right in the den. Um, so just, it kind of helps inform landowners what's going on, like on the landscape and, use that information to help kind of adjust how they manage their livestock. And also with even um, locating and um, managing carcasses, uh, if we can locate the carcass 
soon after it's been killed, um, we can try to identify the cause of death. Because oftentimes, if you don't get to it in the first two days, all evidence of what killed it is gone. Um, so you don't know if it died from pneumonia or something more natural and then was um, scavenged or if it was actually killed by a predator. So just having a good idea of actually what's causing um, death of livestock is has been really helpful for folks. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, so like in a in an average year, like when you were doing it, how many how many cows did you come across that had been killed by so or killed or scavenged by predators? Um, I mean, I don't need exact, but was it two or was it 20? It would be closer between like 10 and 20. Oh, really? Got Mm -hmm. it. And so the way you describe it, it sounds like kind of a, a great program and a a kind of a no brainer approach to, to trying to, you know, figure out how to address these challenges so that all the different stakeholders can kind of figure out a way to move forward. But knowing wolves and knowing the West, people like to be furious about things. So I mean, did, are there any detractors for, for that program, people that don't like what you guys are doing? Because it seems to me to be a, a pretty rational way of going about it. I mean, there are always people that aren't going to oh, yeah. be 100% in love with what you're doing. Um, so I think some people, yeah, kind of resist the idea of range riding, and, but more because I think, I think it has come across sometimes as being more of like, like kind of the environmental side has been stressed maybe a little too heavy. And so maybe there's like fear of like loss of control or like they're only doing that. And they think that, or they think that if they use range riding, that they're going to lose their their eyes for how to manage like lethal control or something. So like, I don't know. It's like, so there's, yeah, it's tough. There's always people that are, aren't for what you're doing, but more and more kind of, at least on the ground when I've like worked in Centennial Valley or um, I guess mostly in Centennial Valley kind of have known, noticed a ripple effect where the more people hear about it and um, have neighbors who have experience with range riders and like hear the benefits of it, they're being turned on to it more and more. So it's been kind of cool to see that. Yeah, that makes sense. And it, I mean, it falls in line with just the general state of things in politics. In my opinion, there's like always, there's this really small minority that is really f- furious about things, but they're just yeah. very loud and it drowns yeah. out the other maybe 80% uh, there in the middle that is, you know, goes along with it, um, which is too bad, but it sounds like a great program. So how did you get into that? Cause you're, we'll talk about where you're from and everything, but you're not from Montana. How did you end up doing that job? Um, so when I graduated from school, um, I had been focusing like all of my studies on ecology and conflict resolution and had been working with wolves back East and heard about more of this kind of, um, the non-lethal methods and like the more collaborative methods of trying to solve some of the conflict with, um, large carnivores. And so I found that that was much more in tune with, I felt my personality and how I would personally handle conflict. And I thought it was a much more, I don't know, optimistic kind of take on trying to work through some of this, some of these issues. And so um, when I was in college, I had applied for a Fulbright actually to go work on similar issues over in Sweden with um, reindeer herders. Uh And I was waiting to hear back from them because I had, I was given an alternate status and so I had to wait even longer. And so when I was waiting to find out this opportunity came up um, to go range ride over in the Centennial Valley and I knew about it and it was like exactly the work that I wanted to be doing, but in the U.S. And so I took the chance and moved out to Montana to start working as a range rider um, and it ended up not leaving. (laughs) I don't blame you. You got a good, good deal going. So when you showed up, um, being from the East, I mean, did you have any real experience out West? Did you have any experience with horses? I mean, how was that transition going from, from East coast college kind of academic world to the, the wide open Montana landscape? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
It's definitely different. Um, <laughs> I had actually never been to Montana. Like I had been to California, but uh, yeah, nothing like the true kind of American West experience, I guess. And I had experience with horses and with predators, and um, but I had no cattle experience. And so I had to I had some really good mentors that um, taught me a lot about working with cattle and. Uh, before I came out here, I was studying a lot of um, low-stress stockmanship and trying to learn how to work with and handle cattle and, yeah, kind of just threw myself into it. <laughs> Did you have any real big, big embarrassing screw-ups early on? Because, like, when I moved to Wyoming, I'm from eastern <laughs> North Carolina where it never snows, and I was with my coworker like, two days in, and it was October, and we were driving to Montana, like, on Madison Valley, and I had the truck in two-wheel drive, and it was snowing. I tried to pass somebody and immediately went into, like, 360 spins down the highway. Luckily, didn't crash. Somehow I pulled it oh out. Oh, my gosh. That must be my, my NASCAR fan uh, skills <laughs> allowed me to pull it out. But it was so embarrassing because I was like, all right, I got to get this, get it together. Did you have anything like that? I would imagine the stakes are a lot higher when you're dealing with livestock and wolves. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, I've had my fair share of getting ATVs stuck way out there. Um, but I guess the most embarrassing (laughs) story, which I've shared with, uh, uh, my friends at Ruby Dale Ranch that I've worked with and they get the biggest kick out of it and like ask me to tell it multiple times. (laughs) Um, actually the day I, the day I was driving into, um, the Valley. So there was a car that was left for me at the airport in Bozeman and it was just like, okay, now get to Centennial. And I was like, okay. And they gave me kind of like rough directions, you know, three miles and turn at this sign kind of thing. And so just made my way down there. And like, again, mind you never worked with cattle, but just read and was learning how important it was to use like low stress stockmanship with, (laughs) with cattle. And so I was driving down the like super vast Centennial Valley and just looking for this one house that was supposed to show up eventually and mind you we don't have cattle guards back in Connecticut and so um I came up to this cattle guard and all of these cows were standing on the other side staring at me and and I was driving I like stopped I'd been talking to my mom on the phone and I was like there are clout cows blocking the road I was like I don't know what to do (laughs) like they're all staring at me and I was like the low stress stockmanship journal is saying like how if you go head on it'll stress them out and so like I was trying to apply all that I had read in the journal to like me driving down the road which was obviously not logical (laughs) and so I ended up I mean I was sitting there for a good like five, 10 minutes trying to assess the situation and how to like continue down the road. And I ended up calling my boss and I, and I was like, um, I'm like almost here, but the cattle are blocking the road. I'm not really sure what to do. And she's like, just drive through. I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay, never mind. Like hang up the phone quickly. Oh my slowly God. Drive through. Yeah, so really... Did they did they just give you a uh, never let you hear the end of that the whole time you were there? No, no, they didn't. I'm sure I probably scared the crap out of them after that was my first experience with the cattle. But like, no, they actually never said anything about that um, oh God, after that point. But yeah, it was a pretty special moment. Oh yeah, one that that really, yeah, yeah. yeah. You got. I mean, <laughs> the thing is, you're always going to have those moments. Like if you're somewhere new. It's it'd be very bizarre if you weren't having those moments, you know, like it's kind of like, you know, they're going to happen. You just don't know how embarrassing they're going to be. I found it <laughs> yeah. every one time I was in at this duck hunting place in Louisiana and I made the just fatal error of of eating gumbo with a fork. <laughs> and I was like living at this duck hunting lodge with these guys and they I mean, they killed me. And I mean, they just destroyed me. And I was like the laughing stock of the place for like two weeks. Oh my God. I was like, man, I didn't, I mean, who, who gives, who cares whether you, <laughs> how you eat the gumbo, but whatever. Um, well, so, so, all right, let's talk about where you grew up. Where, how we, we heard how you came to Montana, but where were you before that? Where'd you grow up? Uh, so I grew up in Waterbury, Connecticut in 
this kind of small Italian neighborhood called Town Plot. And where is that in, I don't know anything about Connecticut. Where is that in like east, west, what's, what side of Connecticut? Um, like central western part of the state. Got it. And so as a kid, were you, were you into the outdoors? I know you're an athlete, but did you, did you do a lot of uh, camping or, or outdoor adventure stuff? I mean, were there any, any experiences you had as a kid that you can look back on that um, laid the groundwork for this life you have now? Yeah. Um, so growing up, uh, we would always go every year up to my family's cabin on Sebago Lake in Maine. And um, my great grandfather built it. And that was kind of my favorite thing in the world going there every year like that's all I looked forward to um and so we were always kind of playing outside when we were up in up in Maine and going on the lake and um so that I think definitely has a strong relationship to like why I'm in love with the outdoors um and like I worked a lot with we had a bunch of dogs and horses like well we didn't have horses we had friends who had horses and we're very generous to like uh, give me riding lessons. And so I had a lot of, I don't know, really memorable experiences with animals and the outdoors growing up. And so, I think that influenced a, a lot of, yeah, things are your, today. Yeah. Are your parents really, I mean, they, they obviously went up there to the, the cabin in Maine. I mean, were they, did they do anything wild, like, like living in Montana or anything in their, in their <laughs> youth or, or were they just very encouraging of everything you were doing? Um, yeah, they weren't super outdoorsy or adventurous, I guess, but very encouraging. I mean, well, I could say that my dad is more adventurous, but in terms of like motorized sports and stuff, like he's a drag racer. Is he really? Uh, yeah. That's awesome. Um, and so he, he actually, yeah, has a an older Camaro that he races and then, um, an actual like dragster, like the long narrow kind of rail cars that he races. Um, and so he's always done that my whole life and since he was younger. And so he definitely has a more adventurous kind of side to him. That stuff's the real deal. I, I knew some people in North Carolina that did versions of that and mm-hmm. the combo of the skills needed to work on the cars and to get them, you know, to, you know, running, that's like a, a full-time job. And then the, the guts oh, yeah. to actually drive them. I mean, that's a, that is a involved, involved sport um, or involved pastime. Yes. That's, that's the real deal. Did you, do you know anything about working on cars? Um, so my family actually owns an auto body and towing shop in Connecticut. And so I grew up around cars my whole life. Amazingly, I don't know, like, <laughs> A whole ton, maybe like a little bit more than the average person, but I wouldn't say I'm the most like competent around um, cars. But yeah, I used to go to the drag races with him all the time. And like you said, it's definitely a super involved sport, even from the track and then coming home and like he'd go to work and then come home and go over to the shop and be working on his dragster until like one in the morning and then go to sleep and wake up and go to work. And like, this is just what he does, but he loves it so much. And so it's pretty That's, cool. It's really cool. <laughs> I, it's really, the people I knew, they did uh, motorcycles, but they mm-hmm. would, um, I went to some of the races with them and it's just such a cool community. And, and yeah. you end up like, I, it seems like they, it kind of travels from one town to the other. And then yeah. you get to know all the people there. And I mean, it's a really cool family friendly kind of deal. At least that was the experience. That's the way I saw it. Yeah, no, it definitely was like there, like you said, there's a whole community of friends that my dad has from racing and he goes to all the different tracks. Like he'd go up to New Hampshire, down to New Jersey and New York and kind of travel around to different races with some friends. And it's definitely, it was a fun kind of thing to do growing up, go around with him to all these different tracks. And so basketball is a big part of your life, I'm guessing. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I played basketball probably from when I was five years old up until up through college. Um, so that was a huge part of my life growing up and I dedicated a lot of, a lot of my life to it. Did you like it? Yeah. Yeah, I did. It was definitely, it, it was tough at times, but I mean, I loved the sport and I loved my teammates and, uh, traveling around with them and but it when it got to being in college like it would definitely it was a little tougher to kind of balance um 
the schoolwork and trying to figure out what I was going to do after college with basketball. And um, so it got a little tougher towards the end. And I actually stopped playing in the middle of my junior year. But it was it was definitely fun. And there's a lot of good memories from those years. (laughs) Yeah, that's a tough deal when when you've been playing something that hard for that long. I've had a lot of friends that were super good, you know, gifted athletes in one way or the other since they were little kids. And a lot of, you know, by the time they get to college, towards the end, it's just kind of like, all right, I'm a grown up now. Enough is enough. <laughs> oh, yeah. it's, 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 I mean, it's been great. Did you, are you, do you consider yourself to be pretty competitive? Like I can be competitive, like, especially if it's like a fun kind of competitive, but I'm deep down, I'm like not competitive at all. <laughs> honestly. I see that's, I, I find that hard to believe, not that we're like best friends or anything, but to be yeah. that, to be that good at something <laughs> and to be that committed. I mean, so, so what, what do you think drove you to, to, practice so hard and because you don't just end up playing college basketball (laughs) I mean are you competitive with yourself oh yeah well okay yeah I could say I'm very competitive with myself (laughs) that's how I am like I don't I don't give a shit about what anybody else is doing for the most part but like I'm so borderline like really mean to myself (laughs) No, I need, right? <laughs> I need to. I need I to chill beat out. The crap out of myself. Oh yeah. So that's something. that's it. Yeah. You're competitive with yourself. Yeah, but not with other people. <laughs> okay, that's good. I think that's the best kind. Actually, I'm biased because I'm not good at basketball. So I kind of <laughs> it's either like be hard on myself about running or don't play sports. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that yeah, that's that's awesome. And so thinking about like the lessons you learn from from playing basketball and, and just team sports or just pushing yourself. I mean, yeah. what, how do you think, what lessons now that you, you've, how old are you now? If you don't mind me asking. Um, 25 for another week. Are you really? So, I mean, you're, <laughs> yeah. you're not that far out from, from those days, but how, what lessons did you take from being involved in such high, high end athletics that you apply, you know, to life as a, a grown up? Um, I mean, definitely learned a lot about time management and just trying to balance all the different kind of interests and parts of my life Um, and like the importance of community and like working hard for what you want. But also, I think one of the biggest things I gained from all my years playing basketball was like how to be resilient. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's um, I think you get that in in all sports, but there's something about team sports that really drives that point home, you know, cause the reality is being a human is a team sport. So you got to figure that out. Um, yeah, that's really cool. Um, so what do you do now to, to satisfy that competitive streak? <laughs> well, for a little while I was actually going over into Mammoth Hot Springs with some folks and playing basketball at like six in the morning. <laughs> Were you really? <laughs> yeah, which was really fun and I actually miss it. And I was getting harassed because I haven't gone since probably like October or November or so. But that was really fun. And I probably should pick that up again. Um, but gosh, to kind of fill that more competitive side, I don't, I don't know. I haven't really... Well, obviously you're you're working really hard. I, I mean, mean, yeah, <laughs> that's probably good. It'd be it'd be kind of weird. I wouldn't be talking to you right now if your whole life revolved around like YMCA pickup basketball. Like <laughs> you're applying that you're applying that uh, that competitive drive to to bigger things, which which is why we're talking. Um, so, of all the things you could have studied, you, so you studied ecology, science. Um, what drew you to to wolves? And I didn't even know, I mean, this, not that I should know it or, or it says anything <laughs> about it, but I didn't even know there was wolf programs in Connecticut or really even on the East Coast. I mean, I know there's a little bit in the mountains of like North Carolina, I've heard about that, but how did you mm-hmm. choose that, that path? Yeah, I mean, I honestly never really thought it was even an option for me being over in Connecticut. Like that wasn't on, on the forefront of my mind and... Um, it just happened that there was, it was like a, a conservation group that was actually in New York, not too far from me, um, that had wolves and I was able to get an internship with them and, um, went over and started working with them and while I was in college and that's kind of how I learned about all of these opportunities and made connections and kind of after it was just all of these doors kind of opened and so I went with it, but 
I mean, I had kind of been interested in like large carnivores and wolves, especially just growing up. And I think having dogs had a lot to do with it um, and just being interested in animals. And yeah. <laughs> so the thing about wolves, I think, I mean, obviously is interesting from a science perspective, but I feel like it's for as much science as there is about wolves, there's equal or more amount of social and human uh, um, kind of challenges associated with them. And yeah. so did that at all just kind of scare you off or did that intrigue you more uh, about studying them, kind of the, the interaction with humans? Because I would think a lot of people may be interested in them from a scientific standpoint, but be like, oh, man, I don't want to get in the middle of all that. And, <laughs> you know, the, this kind of anger surrounding them. Did that did that cross your mind at all? I guess with your, your interest in conflict resolution, maybe it was attractive. Yeah. Um, once I found out about that, I was all in. Oh, really? Actually, yeah. That I was like, that's when I knew that was what I wanted and that's the direction I wanted to go. I felt like it it just fit perfectly in my mind. Um, so, yeah, that was when... I was actually most excited about sticking to kind of wolves and predators was when I was exposed to all of the conflict around it. So your, your um, education in conflict resolution, was that directly related to, to this type of thing you're doing now, or was it just conflict resolution between people or what, what was the course of study like for that? Yeah, I mean, it was focused on people for sure. My attempt at making it more wildlife-focused was with by having my ecology background with it, too. When you think about these issues with wolves, like, or any predators, grizzlies, mountain lions, kind of, like you said, like, it's more of a social issue. It's not actually about the wolves um, themselves. They just kind of represent something to each of the stakeholders, and so that's where kind of the conflict resolution has been really helpful with working with people um, in these issues. So if you had to offer one piece of advice from all your education on conflict resolution, and like if I, if I were, if I'm talking to somebody that I blatantly disagree with, like say somebody that denies climate change, I, mm -hmm. there's no way I can, I, I'll ever agree with them that climate change is a hoax, is a hoax. What is the best way to go about having that conversation so that it doesn't turn into either a yelling match or <laughs> me likely me just like ignoring them and walking away? How do, how do you how do you find a solution to that? Or are there just some conversations that there aren't? There's no good answer to that. I mean, I think acknowledging and that you do disagree with someone. I mean, it's allowed like you're allowed to disagree on issues, but doing it with respect and just being so being aware that there's kind of this difference and then also like recognizing your emotional state and that person's emotional state and kind of being aware of those things like don't go into a conversation with someone if you're all revved up or if that person's like ready to fight you like it's not worth if it's not going to go anywhere productive like it's not worth kind of continuing a, a conversation with someone. Well, what do um, I do if I'm revved up 24 hours a day? <laughs> uh, silent, uh, three month silent meditation retreat in the Himalayas. I mean, that couldn't hurt. Um, but I mean, even like when, honestly, if I ever feel like I'm just like, like you just some, I mean, cause sometimes you can't like, Ha like predict when these conversations are going to happen. But if you like, honestly, if I feel like I'm getting a little like hot on the topic, just listen and try to like understand and connect and like almost reflective listening. So like check in with them and ask like clarifying questions and try to like in turn that um, in instead of feeling so certain about your own position and trying to, to like, be so like headstrong in that area, like turn it into a curiosity and try like get excited about like, well, why does this person feel like this? You know, try to take all that emotion and redirect it. <laughs> no, I think that's great advice. Like in all seriousness, that, that is, I've never thought about it that way, but that is what I kind of try to do. 
Cause I am, I am yeah. curious. I mean, I think people who listen to this podcast would know that I'm, I'm genuinely curious. And I think that's a great, a great way to think about it is just try to understand what they're thinking and why they're thinking. I mean, that's one of the reasons I started this podcast. Cause there's just certain things I don't know anything about. And, um, and also I feel like if, if you can make connections on other things that you maybe do agree with and show that you do have a lot of common ground, it makes, it makes it a lot easy to, um, deal with somebody who you, you know, if you, if you agree with them on 10 things and there's one thing you don't agree with them on, it's, it's not that big a deal, you know, generally, unless they're crazy yeah, or unless I'm, <laughs> I'm the crazy one. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it definitely helps when you have that existing relationship and you have respect between each other like that, that helps a lot. Um, yeah, that it, it I think that's one thing that I wish it could somehow like require everybody in the country to, to go through some of the training you went through, especially nowadays, because it's, it's so important. Do you have any stories like off the top of your head where you saw some conflicting groups, whether it was like environmental people against ranchers or, or hunters against environmental people? And they, you, you were able to kind of witness a kind of a productive conversation when it very well could have gone sideways and been a yelling match? I mean, a lot of the work I've been doing has been in like on the ground has been in like much smaller groups and there hasn't, it's generally been with people who, who do either, either our neighbors or know each other somehow. And usually it's been in a pretty safe space where there hasn't been, it hasn't gotten pretty heated. That's good. Um, yeah, no. And I mean, that's, I think the way to do it is to have everyone face to face in these kind of smaller groups where they can, yeah, just talk one-on-one or talk more intimately. And I think it does help to kind of prevent things from getting too heated. I think you should do all your meetings via Twitter. I think that would be a great idea to keep everybody. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> <Just joking. laughs> I'm getting ready to delete Twitter. Good God. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't do it. Social media. It's really tough. Yeah, it is. When it doesn't help with, with your business of conflict resolution. I mean, that's, um, it's the anti. Um, so when you're doing range riding, I want to get back to that for just a second. Um, yeah. What was the, like, what was the craziest experience you ever had? Like the craziest thing you ever saw? Or, I mean, that could be scary or funny. I mean, what what's like a, a memory, a good story from that time? I feel like we're looking at a lot of things that maybe other people would think is crazy, yeah, but keep in mind your baseline is is off of what most people think. <laughs> I mean, one thing that was really interesting, um, we went to another range rider and I went to investigate a, a carcass my first year. And it was actually a black bear that had been, a sow that had been killed by a grizzly bear. And her cub was still kind of like hanging around. But that was super, that was a super interesting kind of scene to come to. Um, cause we had never, we'd always been looking at like carcasses of elk or cattle and never had been able to see like that kind of interaction play out. So that was super interesting. I um, bet that was, I bet that was quite a scene when those two squared off. I mean, I yeah. bet that was some fight. Holy cow. Yeah. As far as books on wolves, I read earlier this year, or I guess January of 2018, I read, um, American Wolf by Nate Blakesley, mm-hmm. which I thought was awesome. Um, it's kind of, I mean, I thought it got into a lot of good detail, but it's definitely for the masses, which I think is great. But are there any, first of all, what'd you think of that book? Did you, have you read it? So I was, <laughs> I did, I actually found it because of you. And so I was reading it and it was really cool because I've worked in the park on Wolf Project tracking wolves. And so it was just like too real because, I mean, they're talking about all these experiences and stuff that were hit really close to home. So it was really fun to read. And I got probably, I forget, half or three quarters of the way through. And then my sister saw that I had the book and she really wanted to read it. And so I let her borrow it. And I actually just realized today that she never gave it back to me. So I'm gonna, I might have to get that one back. Of, of what you read of that, was it a pretty good representation of everything? I mean, did you see any weird, weird bias or anything? I mean, I, not that I know anything about it in, in depth, but it seemed to be a very well-written examination of everything. Yeah, no, I mean, it definitely it's yeah it was a good representation of kind of what's going on in the park with wolf watchers and everything it was 
it was fun to read. What other sure. books are there? Are there any other or websites or films? Is, are there any other resources that people should check out if they want to learn more about wolves or, or really just big predators in, in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem? Let's see. Honestly, a lot of the books that I've read about wolves were when I was younger. I feel like, I mean, I've read, I guess in more recent times, I've read uh, Bad Luck Way um, by Bryce Andrews. He's a, he's a really great person. Um, but that one's kind of cool because it's, again, the intersection between kind of ranching and um, predators and so that one's a pretty neat book to read. Cool. Um, yeah. I've never heard of that one. I'll um, I'll put links to, to this in the on the webpage so people can can click through. Um, so what kind? So did you finish up with the range riding? Are you, are you done with that completely for now? I guess for now, like range riding, I love range riding. Absolutely loved it. Um, but it was pretty tough because it was just a seasonal gig. Yeah. So filling in the other half of year can be pretty challenging and having to do that every year. Um, so I kind of held off on, on range riding and also just because I felt like I wanted to dive in like, I don't know, it wasn't always challenging enough. Like it can get, I mean, you're doing the same thing pretty much every day, which is great. But like, I wanted to be kind of in meetings and like dive in a little deeper, um, with some things. And I just needed like a little bit more of a challenge. So yeah, I've kind of held off for, for now, but not totally closed off to the idea of range riding again. Yeah. It seems like it would be a really great experience to kind of build this foundation of hands-on on the land, dealing directly with the animals that no matter what you ended up doing in conservation or ecology or whatever, it, it would just be like a, a great foundation for wherever you wanted to go. I mean, I, not not that I'm a career counselor or anything. but <laughs> um, So let's talk a little bit about your graphic design and your marketing business because I think that's really cool and it's so different from, <laughs> um, from, from all the, the scientific stuff. So how did you get into that? You're obviously, you're a talented artist, which I want to talk about. How did, how did, how did you get ah, into that? Thanks. Um, I was just kind of self-taught over, over the years. And again, like <laughs> trying to kind of make a living and survive year round, I just had to start tapping into other possibilities. And so art and graphic design was one of them. And so I had just started off doing kind of smaller projects for friends and, um, things word kind of spread and so I've been doing more and more and eventually actually my a friend uh, Jeff Hull pulled me into work for um, an agency over in Bozeman so I'm doing some work with with them and that's that's great and talk about your art because I was I got some inside information on your your life from somebody who I'm not going to tell you who but said that you've only been messing with around with watercolors for not long at all. I can't even remember how. It was a very short amount of time. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. So I got kind of interested in in watercolors. My mom actually is a watercolor artist. And so I always saw her playing with watercolors growing up and she still does it from time to time. And um, so actually last year and uh, I think it was the end of February, I decided that I was just going to go get some watercolors and like play around and see if I liked it. And, uh, yeah, I ended up liking it. <laughs> you're being very modest. You don't need to be so modest about it because you're, you're really like, you're really, really good at that stuff. And I used to be artistic when I was a kid and I let it drop off. But the fact, I mean, some of the stuff that you have on your Instagram is really, really good. Um, again, Thank like I'm not a career counselor, I'm not an art uh, critic, but I mean, I like, it's really amazing. And the fact that you've only been doing that for, for less than a year is, is pretty cool. I mean, does it, um, with that, with art in general, would you say that how much of it is talent? How much of it is just putting in the hard work and how much of it is just the willingness to kind of put yourself out there? Cause I would guess when you're putting together these projects, putting them out for the world to kind of, um, judge could be, it would make me a little bit nervous. Yeah. Does it make you nervous? Yeah, <laughs> it does. It's, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of uncomfortable for me to share some of that stuff, especially I just put up um, 
actually all of my paintings from the past year up at a brewery in Livingston. And it was definitely nerve wracking. Like I cannot watch people like walk up to my paintings and like inspect them up close. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, it's definitely about like just working hard and putting yourself out there. And I read a bunch of stuff. There's a guy named Seth Godin. Do you, do you know who he is? Have you ever read any of his stuff? I haven't, but I know who he is. Oh man, it's so good. And he just had a new book out. Um, just put a new book out last, mm-hmm. maybe a month or two ago, but it's all about just putting yourself out there and how everybody is nervous, you know, from the, the seasoned pro who's been doing stuff forever. If you're not nervous, something's off. And so <laughs> I think with anything creative, putting it out there is the, the biggest scary thing. I mean, not that this podcast is that creative, but anytime I hit publish, I'm like, oh man, I sound like, so, I sound so stupid. <laughs> It's funny you say that. I was like, I'm not going to listen to this one. I'm going to sound like an idiot <laughs> skipping this episode. <laughs> you don't, yeah, you don't sound like an idiot. You're doing great, but um, I never listen to these things, man. I've never listened to one. I've been on some podcasts. I don't listen to them. I don't want to hear any of it. Um, so right, I think I, that's I get it. That's normal. So for, back to art real quick. Are there any artists or just creatives in general that, that you admire and that have been influential, maybe not to your artwork, but just to your creative process? Gosh, yeah, they're, I feel like I'm fascinated by like every other artist and every time I see their work. But um, I think most recently, I actually took a class with a local artist over in Livingston, Megan Purcell, and she's a, a fiber artist and works with wool and creates these absolutely stunning pieces. And um, she's also a really incredibly sweet person and her work is yeah, her work really inspires me and is very, it's very beautiful. Um, so I really admire her and her work. Um, That's cool that you that you know her too. You know, it's one thing to kind of admire somebody from a distance, but that you get to interact. That's that's pretty. How old is she? Um, gosh, she. Uh, I don't know exactly how old she is. She's older than me, but not by much. Yeah, that seems to be a common theme on this podcast. Is that a lot of people. Um, no matter what they're doing, they have, they seem to have mentors that are, that they, that they actually know. It's not like they just read them. Like me, I'm just so obsessed with Theodore Roosevelt. And unfortunately mm-hmm. I'm never going to meet him. And it, I think there's a lot of value in that face-to-face interaction and, and learning that they're just, they're just human, just like us, you know? So you got this really cool skill set. You're a scientist. You are tough in the outdoors you know you can you're uh, you know how to design do web design you're an artist when you put all that stuff together and i didn't realize you were you're 25 I, for some reason <laughs> i was thinking you were like maybe closer to 30 or something so you're i mean you're just getting started and yet you've done all this cool stuff and you got all these great skills when you think about your career or your life like 10 or 20 years from now what would be kind of the the dream setup if you could pick one it's kind of tough to really come up with a solid like vision for like 10 or 20 years for myself um just because I feel like I often function very much on like opportunities just like popping up and I have a hard time saying no and so if something comes into my life I'm like sure I'm going for it um but like I've kind of over time been able to I guess I'd pinpoint certain things that like make me happier that I do want to kind of keep around. Like I know I really, really enjoy helping people in one way or another. Like that's something that really drives me. Um, and working on the landscape, um, is something that I love. So having that connection and keeping that is important to me or like working with animals. I love that. Like even if if it's horses, livestock, anything like I just like to keep that around and then just keeping myself surrounded by a really supportive community because family and community mean the world to me. So I think if I could find a way to like mesh all of these things together, um, that would be kind of a, a 10 or 20 year vision in some way, shape or another. (laughs) No, I think that's, I think that's more important than, than just picking the job, you know, because that's the stuff that matters. And I mean, when I was 25, I hadn't even moved out West yet. I moved out West. Yeah, no, no. I moved out West when I was 27. And so like my whole career now in conservation, I mean, when I was your age, I didn't even know what a conservation easement was. Like I had no idea (laughs) what that even meant. And now it's all I think about and all I deal with all day. And so 
I'm with you mm-hmm. on just kind of having these values and then pursuing opportunities as they come. It makes sense. And then one more, sorry, I'm kind of jumping all over, but one more question <laughs> about your, you talked about your artistic mentors. Do you have any other mentors or, or heroes, people that you kind of try to emulate in your life um, that you, it could be dead or alive, you've met them or maybe, maybe you haven't? For sure. Um, so I had a professor in college, uh, Dr. Cook, and he was definitely one of my greatest mentors. Um, he helped to really give me a lot of self-confidence and encouraged me. And he was um, a political science professor, but started at our university. He was also head of the honors program and started the um, Center for Compassion, Creativity, and Innovation. And so he was he always just pushes like compassion and a really like he was the one that encouraged me to to go for Fulbright. And like he's always just like pushing every one of his students to try to meet their full potential. And so he was just he's always been a really amazing mentor in my life. That's great. I wish I'd learned that compassion lesson when I was in college, because I once you learn it, um, I mean, that's a powerful, powerful uh framework of thinking, I, I believe. And it, I wish there was a different word for it because I think that word's overused, but it, it is a, a pretty powerful way of thinking. So I've got a few quick questions that I wanted to run through. You don't have to give me a quick answer, but um, <laughs> we can just go through these because it's, it's really cool to compare all the answers. What is your favorite or favorite um, books about the American West, however many you have? Mm, I think my favorite is... Revolution on the Range um, by Courtney White. Never heard of it. That's it's a really good book, and Courtney is actually a co-founder for Quivira Coalition. Oh, okay, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's really cool. So he talks about the Radical Center and just you know bringing kind of all all these different stakeholders together and like how everyone really has when you break it down to their values, like they all value the same things and. So it's a really, a really neat book um, that I definitely recommend checking out. I'll check that out. And I had um, Sarah Wenzel Fisher, who's the executive director of the Kavira Coalition, on the podcast a while back. So if people want to listen to that, I'll link to it. Um, really interesting stuff down there. Um, do you, what's your favorite book of all time? It doesn't have to be about the West. Ooh, um, favorite book of all time. Well, I love like The Alchemist and yep. The Four Agreements, like books like that. Um, I guess maybe maybe those two would be kind of more all-time favorites for me. Yeah, those are really I good. Guess. Those are really good and they have like at least for me, you're not you're not an elderly person like me, but they have different <laughs> they have better meaning. They have like a different meaning every 5 years. Like if you read it now and then you read mm-hmm. it Five years from now, you'll get something different out of it. So I, th- I agree with those. Do you have any favorite? Um, not that we need to agree on your favorite book. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have any favorite films or documentaries? Um, so documentaries. Um, I mean, I love. Um, was it unbranded? Yeah, 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 that's great. Love that one. But just in general for films, I really love the movie Tracks. About Robin Davidson. Have you seen that one? No, heard of it? I haven't even heard of it. That um, I know of. So she she wrote a book and she because she traveled uh, 1,700 miles across the Australian desert with her dog and four camels, and it was just her. Um, so it's just kind of a really neat um, film they made about her um, book. And, cool. I'll look uh, that up. I'm always looking for yeah. good movies. I have a hard time sitting through them, but if I can find ones <laughs> that have been vetted by people who know what they're talking about, I'll watch them. Um, so you got all this stuff going on. You are artists. You make <laughs> websites. You ride around on horses. You do all this really diverse set of things. Is there anything you do that is kind of funny or weird? <laughs> like I learned how to uh, knit. I learned how to knit one time. I tried to learn how to knit recently and then quickly gave up. Um, that did not work out. Um, I don't know, funny or weird. I mean, I cook, but I don't think that's or in like do yoga. Oh, that's a good good segue because I was told by my source to ask you about beet chocolate cake. Oh, <gasps> I don't know. I know who you talk to. <laughs> I know exactly who you talk to. <laughs> What's beet chocolate cake? 
hopefully my birthday cake that I'm getting in a week. Oh, <laughs> all right. That's a little hint. No, it's such, it's a really good cake. I'll send you the recipe. You can make it. It's really good. <laughs> Is the recipe easy? Like four ingredients? Maybe, right, I I'll, think. I'll work on it. Um, so of all the experiences you've had, I guess, everywhere from Maine to Montana, is there one experience that sticks out in your mind? And you may have already mentioned it with that, the, the showdown between the grizzly and the black bear. But is there one experience that sticks out in your mind as being the, your most powerful outdoor experience? And that could be scary, funny, memorable, just an experience that sticks in your mind. One that will, I'll, that will definitely stick with me. Um, when I was in Centennial, we were trying to learn more about how the wildlife was moving through the whole valley and because um, it's a pretty big space, and um, part of what I had to do was, what we were trying to do is figure out where the wolves had their den, and just to know, like, okay, are are people grazing right on top of them, or like try to prevent conflict in in that way, and just have more information to work off of. And so I was tasked with kind of tracking out the den, and so it took some time, but. Uh, it was really cool because as I got closer, um, I did a lot of just ground tracking, like looking for scat or tracks or anything that would kind of give me a clue as to where it might be located kind of centrally. And so as the activity increased, um, I started putting out trail cameras um, and was able to, it was interesting because um, there was one, there was one um, gate that I put I could have put the trail camera facing either way, but for some reason decided to put one facing either way, um, yeah. both north and south. And had I just put up one facing south, I would have missed everything. But the one facing north caught the wolves moving through um, like five times in a week at least, which was like super hot spot, like the closest we came to it. So one morning, another rider and I went to go try to see if we could pinpoint where the den was. And um, we got there super early in the morning, hoping that um, they would still be near the den and um, decided to howl and see if we could get a response. And like we did, and then we were waiting and we're like, okay, whatever, they're not talking, but we're going to go look anyways. And right before we were about to leave, they all started howling up and oh, wow. they were, had just been over the hill, like right above us. And so we're like, okay, at least we know what direction we're heading in. And so um, we started tracking and went up and got to the top of the hill and we saw like all of their little spots where they had bed, bedded down sleeping um, and so we kept going in what direction we felt was right and would find like little tufts of fur on the branches or this or that, and just kept going. And when we got, um, we got down towards this creek bottom and we decided to split up and each take one side of the creek and cause it was getting pretty kind of thick with trees and just downfall and everything. And so, um, so she went on the other side and I stayed on the side we had come down and we hadn't really figured out a way to communicate, but we wanted to be quiet kind of moving through. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, so we started like kind of walking parallel and all of a sudden a wolf ran by me, like not 50 feet ahead of me, ran uphill. And so I like turned to her and was like waving my arms, trying to tell her that like the wolf was right there. Wow. And then she started like waving back to me, but not saying anything. <laughs> and come to find out later, I had like, I don't know, three or four wolf pups like that were running right at me, but didn't see me and I didn't see them. Oh, <laughs> and she was man. trying to tell me because she could see them. Um, but they ended up seeing me and like peeling off in the other direction and we got a little bit further and um the den ended up being right on her side so we were able to quickly get a gps point because we didn't want to hang around and bump them for very long and we just wanted to get in and get out but we were able to find it and that was a pretty cool pretty cool memory um, that's really cool that's really yeah. really cool i mean that's that's intense so kind of a off a question related to that do you and i'm the reason i ask is i'm sure everybody is wondering this but do you um carry any sort of like a gun or 
I don't know if they make wolf spray. <laughs> I mean, what do you what do you do in case you know for worst case scenario insurance policy if if something goes sideways and you and they come after you, or is yeah, that a stupid sure. question? I mean, hey, anything's possible. Yeah, um, you don't want to be too complacent when you're out there. Um, but I mean, we always carry bear spray and usually have like a a spot or some sort of device um, if we're out of service. Um, but I mean, wolves, I guess maybe because I've worked around them, I'm a little less concerned about, um, than grizzly bears, uh, definitely being over in town minor, I'm more aware of my surroundings, um, out here than, uh, especially when it's like thicker kind of brush and trees, but yeah, usually carry bear spray and that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's, unless you're like a highly trained soldier or, a you know, law enforcement, the odds of you hitting something with a gun when you're scared are slim to none. You know, I mean, bear spray is your best chance unless you got a shotgun. I mean, you just, I know I would be shaking and firing the gun off into the air. I mean, it, it would be worthless. So bear spray yeah. is, I'd even use bear spray on like a, somebody that came in my house at night. <laughs> I, I mean, Hey, it has many purposes. <laughs> oh yeah. I'd rather go at them with bear spray than a gun. I, I, a gun wouldn't work. Um, so where's your favorite location in the West? If you had to only pick one. Just one, I would probably say Centennial Valley. Where within Centennial, I probably wouldn't go any any deeper, but it's kind of, I mean, Centennial is my first home, so it has a lot of meaning to me, but also it's probably the landscape that I've known like more intimately than any other landscape. And so I think that was really cool. I think it always have like a special place in my heart. Very cool. And I appreciate you not giving the exact location. I asked that guy, Ben Masters, the unbranded guy, that question. And he was like, I'm not telling you. <laughs> I was like, that's probably smart. Um, <laughs> um, so if so, if you could make a request of the people who listen to this or offer some words of wisdom or some advice, given everything you've seen with wildlife and then with people's interaction with wildlife and then people's interaction with other people, do you have any words of wisdom or, or uh, something you would ask of the people who listen to this that love the West? I would just say try to listen and understand others and their perspectives and lead with compassion. Yeah, I mean, if you can build kind of trust and relationships with others. I don't know. I mean, there's when there's conflict especially, I mean, you can look at conflict and think of either there's the risk and the danger or there's like, opportunity for positive change to happen with conflict and so kind of try to think of it in that light as being opportunities for change and to build compassion and community so wise yeah. words are you sure you're 25 i think you're like 25 <laughs> you've got, you got wisdom <laughs> wisdom beyond your your years so how can people connect with you online my website or Instagram, although I've thought about getting rid of Instagram too. Have you really? Yeah. I just, I, yeah. Why? I don't, cause I, uh, I don't know. It's social media takes so much of your time and life and I don't know. It gives kind of a false sense of community and mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. No, I'm with I you. Just, Part of me just wants to like get rid of all social media. But. I think there's going to be a wave of that <laughs> soon. I mean, I, I, it's invaluable for for me and for this podcast. But if I didn't have the podcast, I wouldn't be on it. But it's been. I mean, there are parts of it that are great, but it it does have this addictive quality that is pretty alarming to me because I don't get addicted yeah. to stuff, and I'm ad I'm definitely addicted to that. Um, I mean, it's it's a very very strange feeling, like knowing well, I, sh I don't need to keep looking at this, but almost like mindlessly looking at it. It's very very strange. Um, yeah, and like you said, there are like so many benefits of it, and that's also where it's like it's tough because you get into a place where like, well, I could kind of use it for this or that, and but when it gets when you can't find that balance, then it's that's kind of tough and. Well, I think you're, I, <laughs> I love looking at your Instagram and it's always positive and it's always, um, interesting. And, you know, between the, the landscapes up there and your artwork, it's, it's hundred percent positive. So people should definitely check it out, but thank you so much for um, taking the time to chat with me. This was really fun. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, it's Ed again. 
Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.